You want Philly Philly? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno, the podcast where prominent figures in sports talk about how sport has impacted the journey of their lives. Philly special. Ready? Welcome, everybody, to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's episode is brought to you by a very, very special guest, the all-time leader in CFL receptions in league history, as well as a two-time Grey Cup champion of the Calgary Stampeders in 2008 and 2014. Please welcome Nick Lewis. Nick, thanks for so, so much for being on. Uh, no problem, brother. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing excellent. And how are you doing this morning? I'm great, man. I'm great. Got up, took my ketone zone. Uh, took my alpha brain, uh, so I'm locked in, I'm loaded, ready for the day. That sounds awesome. So, first things first, with the situation that's going on with the CFL, you were a long-time athlete of the Calgary Zampeters and then a few years of the Alouettes and have been retired since 2018. The way that you look at what is going on around the league in terms of their response to COVID, how do you think the situation is being handled from your perspective or what kind of obstacles do you think are really in the way that are preventing there from being a smooth transition into playing some sort of a season? Or if you think that they shouldn't play a season, why would, what would the situation be? I just think it all comes down to money. Uh, we all know money's an issue. And uh, for a lot of Americans, and right now the, the economy uh, really sucks because when you're American and you're coming up here, uh, if you come up here for 33 to 50% of your your pay, I know that you're only playing 33% of the games, but at the same time, you're coming up here, you're going to be on lockdown. You won't be able to bring your family up. You won't be able to see your family. Uh, even the people that live in Winnipeg. I mean, think of a guy like Andrew Harris that, that lives there and won't be able to see his family for that 105 days, right? Because you can't have any outside person come in. And but for the Americans that's coming up here for that for that time, they're going to um, get taxed on that 33 percent or 50 percent of their pay. So let's say a guy makes the minimum 65 or let's just say 100,000. Guy makes 100,000 dollars and he makes 50 percent. Now he's making 50,000. He has in three months. But once he gets taxed on that 50,000 dollars and then he's going to lose another 40 percent of that when he crosses the border right? Just because the exchange rate. So there's a lot of different factors when it comes into money. Um, a lot of guys probably have jobs uh, working in the off season or doing some other things. They didn't know if they're going to be a season. So um, they're in a good situation and to leave that job for two or three months might be more detrimental or they might be able to make the same amount of money as coming up and playing uh, for those two or three months. So it just kind of depends on each guy. Um, I hope they get a season. I love the CFL, so I hope to see them play and uh, do well. So when you look, when people talk about these contingency plans in terms of the from the players' perspective and from coaches' perspective, with the potential of only a six-game season, do the wins and and does it feel as meaningful, or, or does it still feel like? like the real deal, obviously not as many games, but let's say if you were the Grey Cup champion of the team that played a six-game season, would you still feel the same pride as winning 18 regular season? 
a great copper. Yeah, yeah. The San Antonio Spurs won the shortened season in 99-2000, I believe it was. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's still considered a great champion because the best part is, is that right now there's probably going to be eight playoff teams, right? So there's only going to be one team that won't make the playoffs, but every game is going to count, right? You six games, every game counts, right? You If you go two and four – it's going to be really hard because you're going to have to go on the road and um, they're all in Winnipeg. So you might see the East versus the West in every round, right? It might be the best team versus the worst team. Uh, It might be one versus eight, two versus seven, uh, three versus six and four versus five. So there is no East and West, right? So there is no easy road to the great cup. So um, I think it's a, it's a great dynamic. I think, when we look at the game and we need a new business model in the CFL, but I think we also need a new uh, structure, right? I think we need to take out the East and the West when it comes to playoffs. And I think this needs to be the structure every year. It should be uh, one and two. The best in the East gets a buy and the best in the West gets a buy, but uh, three plays six and four plays five. And then one will play the, you know, whoever has the lowest ranking um, after that at home for the, you know, for that game. So that's what, I, that's what I've always thought it should be, uh, kind of like the NFL, but um, just taking out the ranking, you know what I'm saying, just taking out the East and West for the playoffs because there are only nine teams. So I think this is a great debut of that if we can get it – if they can get it done and uh, we'll be able to see it rock. Absolutely, and I think that I can agree with that sentiment with the, the odds ranking of teams going into the playoffs with – where for many years and, and you've seen it from being a Calgary Stampede that the East being a significantly weaker division for a s- big stretch of years and, and Montreal or Toronto or Ottawa fighting for that second spot or ha- and Hamilton usually winning the East or Ottawa winning the East. And then in the West, you got Stampeders, you got Eskimos, you got Lions, you got the Bombers and the Riders who can all be good teams at any time. Right. And yeah. each team has their year. And so it's, it's kind of hard to knock like the last place team in the West probably could still beat like that third team in the East, but they have the crossover and no crossover team has won the great cup. And I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think if there was a one and two, get the buy and then three V six, four V five and really, you know, duke it out, then that would show a better test of strength and of adversity, especially in the playoffs. And, and like you, I liked how you mentioned the, uh, the the 99 Spurs you know, during the lockout year where they played the shortened season, the Knicks were the eighth seed and they made it to the finals. Yeah. And they almost stunned, they stunned a lot of teams, even though they played a short season, it still counted. So um, it'd be interesting to see what happens with that. And I hope that the CFL does play a season because it's important. It's, it's a quintessential aspect of sports in our country. And I think that people far off and underrate how amazing the CFL is in terms of the quality of players and, and the strategy as well as, just the overall entertainment value and what it brings to, to our country for sure. So to, 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 to take it back then to some of your origins in the CFL, you're a player out of Southern Arkansas and came up to Calgary in 2004. What was your first thoughts about being in the CFL, getting the opportunity to come to Canada to play professional football? Well, I never really watched the CFL. I didn't know how prominent it was until I got here. Um, you know, I knew it was a great opportunity and um, I had a chance to, uh, play arena football, but uh, I went to a Calgary workout instead of – they wanted me to start. I went and tried out for a team in Arkansas. Um, it was like a Wednesday. I thought I was going to try out for the team, but it was more like they wanted me – they inserted me into their practice. 
I did really well at practice. Um, uh, the coach was Flipper Anderson. I don't know if you remember him. He used to play for the, the Dolphins and um, receiver. And he was like, hey, man, can you start this weekend? I said, well, I have to work out for Calgary uh, in Dallas. And if, if nothing happens, then I'll come back. But so once I got a call from uh, Matt Dunnigan and coming up to Canada, man, it truly changed just uh, just everything, right? So I knew the jump in, in how much um, – I was going to get paid, but I also knew how, uh, how much difference it was going to be. I didn't know anything about Canada, right? Um, I wasn't expecting igloos and things like that. Uh, I, I mean, I figured there was some, but I, I didn't really expect that. But once I got off the plane and um, this older couple actually at the airport was telling me about Calgary being broken up into four quadrants. And I didn't know what it meant. But then when I got there, I seen that everybody's kind of in their quadrant and then there's downtown. So, uh, no, I, I enjoyed it from day one, man. It was it was awesome. Uh, training camp, uh, rookie camp, uh, the third day of rookie camp, I was ready to go home because uh, at the beginning of practice, it started to rain and hell. And then it's, the sun came out and then it started to snow. And I was like, man, this is crazy. You get three different things in one day. Um, I don't know if I can take this, but I, I stuck it out. And, yeah, it was good. So, yeah, and it's uh, always interesting to, to listen to the perspective of Americans that come to the CFL or, or to Canada for the very first time because you, you're right, you do hear a lot of those stereotypes of the, um, the broad general cold weather and, and igloos and all sorts of wacky things before coming to Canada. It seems kind of unknown. It's a big country, and, you know, Texas is one of the biggest states in America, but, again, farthest away from Canada, right on the, on the Mexico border, and you come up to Canada and you're wondering, well, is it really going to be as snowy as, as, as they say it is, or is it going to be cold? Is it not? And, you know, there's, um, there ain't much snow in Texas, that's for sure. But I can definitely tell that, you know, there is a bit of a, a, a shell shock when you get to that spring weather in, in CFL training camp with, especially yeah. here in Winnipeg, that, that rapid change in, in temperature. And the situation you walked to, into in Calgary was one that was, was on the come up and, what was your, your first thoughts of the, the players and the talent that surrounded you when you were on the team in 2004? Well, just to go back on uh, what we talk about, the ignorance of uh, some Texans and, and some people from the South. I mean, the thing is, we don't really learn about Canada, their history or anything in school. So, uh, you know, some people come up to you and say, are you still playing overseas? And I'm like, no, I'm not overseas. It's like right, it's like right there. But um, no, it was good. Um, I remember – Looking at the uh, roster, I got a call three days for for rookie camp, and uh, I remember looking at the roster, and I seen guys like Albert Connell, who who had went for a thousand yards in the NFL for the Redskins, and uh, he played at Texas A&M. Uh, my family's huge A&M fans. I'm a Longhorn fan, and then Wayne McGarity, who was there with the Longhorns, uh, and played in the NFL for the Cowboys as well. And guys like that and, and ended up being my roommate, Salacio Sanford, who played uh, for the Chicago Bears and he'd won the MVP of NFL Europe one year. Um, so just seeing the caliber of guys that were on the team uh, and just coming in like, man, fresh out of Division Two, it was like, you know, you got to make them know who you are because everybody on this team is pretty much established in, in some way or form through been in the league for multiple years or they've been in the um, uh, the NFL. So for me, with no pro experience, it was just like, 
uh, let's just come up and um, let's let these guys know who I am. And um, I enjoyed it. I remember the first couple of days of rookie camp. I thought I was doing really well. Uh, Victor Ike was there too, who played at Texas, uh, getting to know him and things like that. And then once the, the vets show up, you know, the vets show up that last day pretty much, and they're looking at all the rookies, see who's this, that. And, um, yeah, it was kind of like, let's go put on a show. And then, and then they're on the field the next, uh, on that Sunday. And it was, um, it was, I was in a compete mode. Right, I was in the the maximum compete mode, and um, they would say one's in the huddle. I'd go jump in until somebody made me get out, uh, until finally uh, the coaches told me to stay in. Right, and uh, I was fortunate. I was start. I started the first uh, preseason game, and the first regular season game of my career. So it was always a, um, I guess I won't say instant success because there was so much that went into it to to be able to accomplish that. And in that first 2004 season, you were named the CFL Rookie of the Year, and, and Calgary had had a had, had a strong year that that season. And were there any memorable games or or any? What was the thing that stuck out to you the most during your first full season playing playing up north? Uh, my first game uh, playing in Sask um, against Sask, and uh, my first catch. You know, I catch an out route, break a couple tackles. Um, I try to run. I run a guy over. And um, and get up and just kind of and scream and yeah it was kind of like here we go and uh, caught a pass down the sideline I think I finished like three catches fifty some yards and I scored my first touchdown and I was telling some kids I was training the other day that um, I caught an out route for a touchdown I ran hit the goal post I did the Ric Flair walk off of it with the woo and because um, they broke it down um, with the same thing give me two claps and a Ric Flair. And I was oh, like, yeah. man, I was doing that 16 years ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's, that's old. And um, so, yeah, it was, um, it was fun. That was, that was one of the games. And uh, my first two-touchdown game against Winnipeg um, in Calgary uh, was, was pretty cool. So there was some, uh, some good memories in that, uh, playing with Kahari Jones in my last five games, uh, with him coming in and Joffrey coming in for the last five or six games and, so there was some uh, memorable games. Like uh, I went over the thousand yards my first time in Winnipeg, last game of the season, and uh, the wind was horrible. It was cold. It's coldest game I'd played into that date, and uh, yeah, but we were out there for a goal and just uh, go get it done. So you ta- you mentioned having played with Kahari the last few games there. Kahari having been famous for his time playing in Winnipeg, what was? What was your sentiment and initial relationship with Kahari, having known that he was a more weathered veteran at the time and towards the end of his his playing career, but had much experience with playing on successful playoff teams? Did you try to soak up a lot of stuff from him? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, there was such a revolving door quarterback my rookie year. I mean, we had Marcus Crandall, uh, Tommy Jones, Michael Souza, um, and some other guys that stepped in. And there was – I probably caught a pass from four or five different quarterbacks that year. So when Kahari came in, we actually didn't even have a playbook. And, you know, Dunnigan just told Kahari to uh, just make it up and go as you go. So we're in the huddle, and he's just kind of telling everybody what to do and kind of drawing it up in the dirt. And it was it was crazy, but um, he got it done. And that's how I knew, like, he was very intelligent. Um, I called him the preacher because of the way he talked and, like, okay, Lou, uh, I'm going to need you to go over here and uh, let me get a 45 on this side and let me get a, you know, 9-11 over here. And 
It's just like, okay, let's go run it. And, uh, but you believed in it, right? And for me, I mean, if I was a veteran, I'd be like, man, what is this? What are we doing? But as a rookie, you don't know. Like, this is what it is, right? This is your first experience. So you just go out and try to execute it to the best of your abilities. And uh, yeah, we, we made it work. It was good. So now you look forward to the future and, ha- and see Kahari Jones in his role as the head coach of the Alouettes. To foreshadow, or I guess if you would have been able to, to foreshadow into the future, as soon as the decision was made there in Montreal to bring Kahari in to lead the team, did it make a lot of sense to you when you saw the intelligence and the football IQ that he brought to the huddle for you guys way back in your rookie year? Did you see that there was a lot of that synthesis and it was a very logical decision for that? Uh, oh, Alouettes? yeah. And, and people love Kahari. Like, you can just – I don't know anybody that doesn't like Kahari Jones. Like, he's such a great guy. You know, that's the best thing. He's a great guy. Uh, he smiles. He laughs. He's competitive. And um, he reminds me a lot of Kevin Glenn. You know, they're not, a, they're not loud people, uh, but they're very intense inward, and they're very competitive. But at the same time, they're very smart individuals. And, and I did see that in Kahari because he's very confident. Um, and you look what he did with Vernon Adams last year and just to have that confidence and, but to be able to set the team straight. Uh, I remember I was making, I would laugh at him and, and I went up and grabbed him one time. Cause I'm like, when do you start cussing? I hear these speeches in the locker room, you cussing now. <laughs> and it was like, but it was so funny and he would just laugh and, and stuff. But yeah, man, hundred percent respect for Kahari because he, he's an amazing man, uh, amazing father which is most important, uh, but he's a great coach and uh, a great leader. And fast forward a, a few years, and on the Stampeders, they had a, have a bit of an, a strange history with the, with the trajectory of their success. The, you mentioned Marcus Crandall, who was the quarterback of the, of the Stamps team that won the Great Cup in 2001 in a big shock victory against Kahari Jones on the Bombers, who were 14-4, yeah. and four, the heavy favorites. And, and, and then – you guys kind of started to find your stride at quarterback only a few years later, and it wasn't, it wasn't more than four years until you guys finally brought home the first great cup since the 2001 victory in Montreal. Talk about what you saw in that team that made the 2008 Stampeders different than the previous Stamps teams who had found success, but maybe not enough to have captured the great cup in your first few years. Yeah, I just think that um, we were all young. You know, Henry was going into his real first starting opportunity. I mean, he had started a little bit in SAS, but he was still the number two guy behind Nelon Green. And when Nelon went down, he started. He got hurt, and Rocky Butler started that one year, and then he came back late to start. But his first real experience of starting, and he was young in his career. I mean, he was 29, but at the same time, he was really young. Um, he might have been younger than 29. I don't know how old Ink is now. But, um, you know, that's just one of those things that when you look at it, um, I was young. Jermaine Copeland was there for the first time. Kenyon Rambo came in for the first time. Joffrey's first full season. Uh, Marte Jenkins was there. So we had a lot of guys that were very talented. And, yeah, we just turned the ball over way too much in the playoffs. We'd have – I think we had in 2005 and six we had 13 turnovers in two playoff games, right? We were up double digits in both games. I remember against Edmonton in 05, we were up like 22 to three at halftime. And we lose 25-27, all because we had turned the ball over. We're down at their six yard line and we fumbled the ball and um, they run it back for a touchdown. 
right? If they don't get that touchdown and we get a field goal, that we win that game, right? So there's so many different factors that go into why we were losing. It was all us. It had nothing to do with the other team. And, um, yeah, I think we were just tired of losing. Uh, and 2008 was the first year that we had won the West because uh, other years we were second. I think we were second in, and then we were third in uh, 2007, but we were second uh, 05 and 06. So to win the West, it was like, okay, we're the best in the West now. You know, we have one game. This is our game. And if you watch that game against BC, they came out and they was kicking our ass for a while. And then um, Benjo makes two great plays on the goal line. Uh, to stop Steph Logan from going in. They get a field goal, and uh, we go down and, and, and we come back and win the game. So um, it was definitely a struggle. But once we once we feel like we got that first victory, we felt like, okay, now we know what it takes to win, and, and we felt good at going into Montreal. And the Alouettes at the time were also a team on the rise with the likes of Anthony Calvillo and Ben Cahoon and Yvonne Coburn and so many other great players the 2008 Great Cup, I find, I remember watching as a young kid, it, was, it wasn't as electrifying offensively as, as, let's say, the 2005 with Montreal Edmonton, but it was a great defensive battle, and, and Sandra DeAngelis put a lot of points on the board to help slowly chip and chip and chip away yeah. for you guys, and, and the, the game came down to a defensive stop at, at the very end, and, and and then you guys became became champions. What what was it during that game that that allowed you guys to stay focused and really hone in on the goal that you were trying to achieve, considering you had played in many tough playoff games up to that point? Yeah, we had beat Montreal both times that year, so we felt comfortable going in there and getting the job done. But you know, their their offense had so much talent. Like you said, Avon Coburn, Jamel Richardson, S.J. Green, Brian Bratt, and Kerry uh, Watkins. Uh, they had so much firepower, AC quarterback. So it was one of those things where we knew uh, we need to go in and we need to put up points. But our defense came out and played so well. Their defense stepped up and played so well. Um, they were able to – like, w- there was only two touchdowns scored. Avon Coburn and Brett Rout scored the only two touchdowns of the game. Sandro, I think, had six uh, field goals. And, um, yeah, man, it was – or five field goals. It was something that was just so crazy to be able to uh, just be a part of that game because it felt like it went by so quick. Uh, I remember at halftime, we were just talking about Hank using his legs. Uh, They were trying to take Joffrey out of the game, and we were just trying to motivate Hank, man, use your legs, use your legs. And he came out with over 50 yards rushing in the second half, which helped us seal that game and and make some big plays. And, um, you know, when you have so much talent on the field offensively on both sides – um, and I think the defense has stole the show, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great game to be a part of. You know, when you get into the playoffs, everything is magnified. Mm-hmm. When you get in the great, great cup, it's even more. So, you know, coaches are less likely to do big things or trick plays and things like that because of the, the magnitude of it going wrong, right? So you want to stay close to the vest and – and with the way that our defense was keeping us in there and probably the way that Montreal's defense was keeping them close um, allowed both offenses to just try to chip away instead of trying to make big plays. And I think ultimately that's what, that's what happened. For sure. And it definitely shows when you're in the great cup and on the, the greatest stage in Canadian football, that it is, everything is magnified and to do trick plays to 
longer third down gambles or onside kicks. It's just, it's super, super, super crazy. And that's why you look at, you know, some of the most successful teams are the ones that make the, the least amount of mistakes yeah. and they execute the most. And if you look, I guess the most recent great cup this last year, Winnipeg, Hamilton turned the ball over how many times? Winnipeg turned the ball over zero times. Exactly. And Hamilton had beat Winnipeg and they, they kicked him up and on the field both times in regular season. But you turn the ball over and especially, right, great de- like defense wins championships. You know, you got Will Jefferson, Jackson, Jeff Coe coming, coming around the end. Those guys are, you know, they're going to get you and, and yeah, when they get going. And, up. Yeah, defense, so, like all three games in the playoffs, that defense was amazing. Like just to watch them play was very inspiring um, with Big Hill and those guys, the secondary flying around. Uh, that D-line getting after people up front. I mean, they knew. They're like, look, we can't go out and just outscore people. But if we go do what we do, then we're going to win these games. And you see – when you see motivating football like that and when you see defenses play like that three weeks in a row, dude, that's so inspiring. That's that's inspiring football. Absolutely. And and I, I love that you mentioned that because, you know, as a long-time Winnipeg Blue Bomber fan myself – the team that caused Winnipeg the most trouble over the last 20 years is the Calgary Stampeders. It's not Saskatchewan, it's not Edmonton. You guys always had Winnipeg's number for many, many, many years. And it, and between the 2001 season and 2019, there were no meaningful games that Winnipeg had won in McMahon. And you see three interceptions on Bolivar Mitchell. Definitely one of the worst days of his career, but doesn't take away from all the success he's had. But it just showed, like you said, that inspired football that the Winnipeg Blue Bombers defense played. And the offense followed, followed suit. And I guess it, it kind of goes hand in hand with teams that win great cups. And when you guys won in 2014, again, it was another six years later, but yeah. the defense you guys had in that game was outstanding, right? Only held, held, held Hamilton to 16 points and the offense didn't have to do that much, but the defense really stepped up and enforced the issue blocking field goals. And, and uh, talk about the contrast between, the 2012 and 2014 great cup for you guys, because 2012 was, you know, in Toronto, lost the Argos who weren't seen as, as good of a team at that time. And you guys had Kevin Glenn as a starter instead of Hank as previous and different than when, when Bo was starting in 2014. So what was it, what was it about the transition you guys felt from losing the big game to winning? And what was the mindset that went into that, that uh, overcoming of adversity? Yeah, um, you know, speaking of Winnipeg's defense, I just want to say shout out Richie Hall um, for the amazing job that he's done there. And um, but yeah, 2012, man, I just think we were we beat Sask at home. Uh, we went on the road. We beat BC, and like we talk about how tough the, the West is to make it out. Right when you make it out of the West, you all, you automatically feel like you have the advantage. Right, and I think that we kind of took Toronto lightly. They were nine and nine. Um, you know, I think we were 12 and six or 13 and five. And uh, we were rolling and we felt like we beat the two best teams in the CFL outside of ourselves, right? So then it's like, oh, well, we're going to Toronto. I remember we were joking. We we're like, who are we playing in the Great Cup? Don't matter. You know, we were like, don't matter. You know, and um, things like that. But then you show up and, um, Chris Jones did a hell of a job because they knew so many keys. They knew every run and pass. They had keys on a couple of our linemen, and um, they called every run. They were shifting towards the runs. They were doing all kinds of stuff. And 
Yeah, that defense showed up that day. And plus they had a couple of ex-Stampeders on their team that, that really motivated Robert McCune and, and those guys, Tony Washington and Kenyon Rambo and um, a lot of those guys. And, and their offensive firepower, man, Dontrell Edmonds still playing in the NFL. Mm-hmm. You know, Chad Cackard and Chad Owens and um, Jason Barnes and Maurice Mann. And they had Ricky so Ray. much. Yeah, Ricky Ray. So they had a lot of firepower. It wasn't like they were just a, a bad team. You know, they had went through some injuries and things early in the middle of the season, but um, they'd won the last three games to get in. And, you know, we, we probably should have gave them more respect. Um, I think when, one thing that you should always do is respect your opponents because it, it is one game. It's not like the NBA or NHL where you got a seven-game series or five-game series where you can say, okay, the better team should win um, three or four of those games. It's a one-game a one game, one win, and you know we just didn't show up fully. And um, yeah, hats off to Toronto, man. They they played really well, but I did think that that motivated us in 2014. We'd beat Hamilton both times, and we was just like, look. And I think we blew Hamilton out both times, but we're like, look, it's going to be a tougher game, and we have to be able to withstand what they're going to bring. And uh, we were way more focused going into that game, and I think we we went out there and executed. And just to let it be known, I mean, we watched their film against uh, when they played in the, the Eastern Final. Both the Brandon Branks' touchdowns that he ran back in the Eastern Final, uh, there were two major clipping calls on that that didn't get called, right? So good job by our coaches, you know, just, you know, magnifying. Look, these guys are – there are a lot of hits in the backs on their returns. And, uh, yeah, that's what it came down to in the end. And again, that that great cup was another defensive battle right to the end, and and Speedy B takes it back. But you see the flags, and when Andre Prue does the block in the back call, then it. Um, I remember actually speaking with a, a a person who had played on Hamilton in that year, and he had said that you know Brandon Banks did the sideline, and he wished he would have gone back into the game to run a fly because had a chance to win the game. Still, the fastest guy on the field, and Zach Kalaros, who was in his first great cup as a starter had done an outstanding job that year, but they still had still had a chance to win. And, and, uh, and you guys still had to close the game. It wasn't that that was zeros on the clock and, and thank goodness for the flag. It was, you know, we, as D hey defense, we still got to make a stop. And, and you guys did because, you know, all they needed to do is to get in when 40, 50 yards for Kalaros to heave it up. But you guys stood tall. And I think that that said a lot about the character of, uh, of the team that year for the Stampeders, because, as great as the Stampeders look now within the years following that season, still hard to win football games, even when you're only playing against eight other teams. And even when you're playing against teams that you think are weaker, you you've 100%. blown on the regular season. So that's uh, it, it's that a lot. And, um, and in, in terms of your experience in those great cups, you had now been closer to halfway through your career. And what was, what was your mental? Where was your mental state of mind at at that point in your CFL career after you'd won two great cups and you'd been in the league for about ten years? Where were you? Where were you at with things after that season? I was ready to retire. Um, uh, I remember that great cup day like it was yesterday. I woke up and uh, see my dad and my aunt and, and my family, and you know I was just kind of at peace with everything. Like you know, this is probably my last game. Um, I didn't take the team bus to the stadium in BC. I walked down, got on the uh, the train there, and took the train over. 
and, and getting off the train and walking to the stadium. And I look up at the stadium and actually I tears in my eyes. I'm like, man, this is it. You know, we had a good run. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I just stood there for a minute. Uh, I prayed and then uh, I walked in the stadium and then it was like, let's go get it. Right. So um, I understood what, what I had on it. And Huff came up to me the night before and told me, he's like, look, I want to introduce you first. Um, so it was kind of like that. Yeah, let's go get it. And uh, yeah, I was, I was ready to retire. And um, I was in a lot of pain in 2014 uh, from the ankle injury the year before. And cause I I'd, I'd worked really hard to get back and I was actually cleared in 2013 to play in the Western final, but it was kind of late notice. And, um, they told me I could play in the great cup of 2013 and we turned the ball over six times in, in that game. So didn't make it then, but then, uh, you, yeah, you come back to 2014 and I was in a lot of pain, a lot of pain and my ankle just didn't respond as well as I thought it was going to respond. Uh, I missed five or six games that year. And, you know, uh, it was hard to go through practice. And I, I, was, I think I was just done being in pain. And, yeah, but, you know, it was a lot of hard work, a lot of grind, a lot of extra work, a lot of rehab after practice, you know, three or four days a week, uh, spending a lot of money uh, to make sure I'm taking care of myself. And, uh, yeah, when it came down to it, you know, I was, uh, I was good. I was good with my career at that point, two great cups. Um, over 10,000 yards receiving. And I just said, you know what? It was, it was a great run. And, uh, yeah, Pop called me in March. And um, I said, why not? And so what was it – what was the, the motivation and the, and the strength behind uh, going all the way out east to Montreal considering you'd, you'd come to such a peaceful mindset within that you knew retirement was probably Im- imminent and – and you were trying to soak it all in before not knowing if that would be the last time you would have stepped on a football field. So what was it that, that made you say, okay, you know, let's, let's do it. Why not? At a mutual friend's birthday in Houston um, in January, I'd seen Fred Stamps. And um, I knew he was going to Montreal. I knew SJ was over there. I knew I'd played against Billy Parker, Chip Cox, John Bowman, um, all those guys for years. So it was one of those things that there was so much respect there. And then, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, do I really want this injury to, you know, be the last thing that I remember or to be the last thing that this is the reason why I I left the game. So, you know, Jim Pop added me on Facebook in February. And then, yeah, I was like, maybe, I don't know. This is kind of weird. Jim Pop added me on Facebook. And then, yeah, a couple weeks later, you know, I get a phone call. I didn't know what it was. I answered it. And he's like, what's going on? You're not going back to Calgary? I said, no, I'm, I think I'm going to retire. And he's like, he goes, well, why don't you come to Montreal? And I said, well, let me know what the numbers look like, and uh, let's see if we can do it. And, uh, yeah, I told him, as long as I stay in six figures, I'm good. And that's what we did. We, we, made, it, we made it work. You know, I took a, took a six-figure pay cut, but I stayed in six figures. But – thing is, is that I was never playing for the money. I was playing for the, the love and enjoyment. Uh, but it was one of the best decisions I ever made because I had so much fun those three years. We didn't win as much as I thought we would, uh, but it was great three years experience.
And looking at the timeline of, of Montreal's personnel, you, you didn't have a chance to – did you have a chance to play under Kahari or was he was no hired the season, I think the season or two after you had – uh, Kahari was hired last year, I believe, as the head coach, yeah. Because he, he was in BC two years ago as the OC, and then he went in last year as the – he went in last year as the um, offensive coordinator. But then through the whole Sherman thing, they – they just moved Kahari up to head coach, which was a great move for him, which is a great move for him. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, one of those things where it was a revolving door head coach. I think I had five head coaches in, in three years. Tom Higgins and uh, was there, and then Pop stepped in, and then Cavis and uh, Jock. And, yeah, there's so many guys that just stepped in, and, and it's like a revolving door, four or five head coaches. And I mean, in Calgary, I had Dunnigan, Higgins, and Huff. And then in Montreal, I had more head coaches in three years than I did in Calgary in 10. Right. So it was, um, it was crazy. It was chaotic. But uh, those guys in those locker room, man, that you, I'd show up to play for those guys any day because they're just amazing men and uh, competitors. And I, I can only imagine how tough it is as a football player or professional athlete as well to to have to have so much variance in the people that are leading your team. And at at, at a point, professional athletes have to, to maintain a certain level of, of, of selfishness, not in a bad way, but in a you got to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and you're doing your job and making sure that you, so that you can have a job and you don't have to worry about too many other factors. And one of the great lessons a football teaches you, I'm sure, is you got to worry about what you can control. And obviously being in a situation where things are changing in the front office and in the head coaching staff, you got to worry about what you can do to keep playing and keep your position. Otherwise you won't have a job and that's, that's more detrimental to yourself. But throughout your football career, now you look back and, and you've been retired and have you started your podcast and started sharing your stories and, and endeavors that have spanned after that your playing time, what is one thing that you've realized or maybe knew through your playing time that hits you more now as you have taken a step back from playing the game that you wish maybe you would have known earlier or a lesson that, that you took from football that now you apply to your life wholeheartedly and, and really, really lean on? Yeah, I just applied competition, man, in my life. It's just like um, I think competition is healthy. Um, trying to be the best me, right? Waking up every day trying to find who's the best me, right? No matter what area I, I apply it to, whether it was sports, uh, whether it's life, whether it's building, whether it's creating, just try to find the best me. I find so much um, in, in my podcast, I just feel like so many fans only know you from three hours, right? And very emotional times. Right, you're not thinking about the fans. You're thinking about executing your job and winning a football game. And there's a bunch of tense moments, especially in playoffs and things like that. There's celebrations. There's this. There's that. Um, but just to understand and to understand the 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 kind of the understand just who these people are. Right, their struggle to to make it there. Like for me to come from a division two walk on 
to do what I did, I mean, I think I deserved the right to celebrate a first down. I think I deserved the right to do the things that I did um, because I earned it. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't that – and I've never thought that I was better than people off the field, uh, but on the field I do. And But I had to have that confidence. I had to have that mindset to be successful. So just everything that I do, I apply it. Because I feel like if I could be one of the greatest receivers in CFL history because I applied myself, why can I not feel like I can be one of the greatest businessmen, the greatest entrepreneurs, the greatest um, podcast hosts? Like, why not? Right? All I have to do is apply myself. I've already proven that it, that it can be done. Right? So now it's just about applying it and going out and making it happen. And, and that's what I enjoy, man. I compete with myself. I compete with life. I compete. Um, I try to get around people that are going the same places I want to go. Like I hang around CEOs and I hang around people that, that are, are positive, right? And positive breeds positivity, right? So I just try to stay positive and just try to be around positive and um, just move in one direction, man. Just, you know, help people out where I can and, and just be a, a light, the light um, that God has made me to be, uh, to reflect him and, and just go out and just try to be the best I can be. Those are very wise words and, and they ring so true for, for many athletes and people that have competed in anything seriously in their life, even outside of athletics. And, and I know that from the perspective of playing higher level football and it, when you speak with professionals, there are people at the end of the day too, and they have their lives and their goals and, and visions and there's so much more. I, I, I love the way you phrase that. So much more than just three hours. The three hours is such an emotional focused time where the only thing that exists in the world is you on that field and nothing else. That's it. And people can often, and especially fans and, you know, uh, Monday morning quarterbacks, couch quarterbacks, GMs, whatever you want to call it, you know, they can make snap judgments and, and decisions on how they feel about certain athletes based on what they do in three hours. And can you yeah. imagine if it was the other way around? Can you imagine if you made decisions? Exactly. People, hey man, you know, I saw this guy in three hours, you know, in this, <laughs> in this meeting, you know, he said this thing like, Oh, like screw him, man. Like, you know, I can't believe he did that. But the, um, the thing I love so much about the CFL and you alluded to a lot of the things is that it's a really community based league. It's not this, you know, you're on a pedestal and Oh my God, like you are Jesus. Because that's not true. They're, you know, you guys are competitors that, that, uh, that really entertain fans with the tremendous talents you have, get involved with the community, become better men, become better fathers, become better people. And there's so much development and there's so much love for the game that happens in the CFL because you're not going to become a millionaire playing this game in Canada. And it really shows and proves the test of time that, the ones that are in it for the right reasons are the ones that become the most successful. And, yeah. and the way that you have applied yourself from a, a walk on, on a, at a div two team, Southern Arkansas, like most people have not heard of that university. If they just follow basic NCAA sports, unless they're from America or unless they're from that area. And you can go from there. Yeah. You know, like if you truck, if you truck a guy, you score a touchdown in triple coverage. If you drag four guys on a touchdown run, like celebrate, be happy. Yeah. It's amazing. It's so hard to play professional football and the great things that you've done in the time since and, and will do in the time since really show that it's possible to achieve a lot if you apply yourself and 
And if you have the right mindset, and I think that having a podcast and sharing stories and putting yourself into an environment where iron sharpens iron and positivity breeds positivity is, is only what's going to make you more successful. And, and um, from, from your perspective through this journey that you've had since playing football, your competition has been, the competitive mindset has been huge for you, but what is one thing that you are striving to continue to get better at? And one thing that you really want to, to achieve as the years go on with, with your life and, and with the things that you are endeavoring in? Yeah, just affect more people. And, you know, I, I want to affect as many people as I can in a positive way. Um, I've always felt like I was here for the people, right? I always thought on the field it was entertainment first. If I entertain people, that means I did a good job because uh, it means I made plays and, and things like that. So it's always uh, just try to allow people to enjoy that time. And now I'm in a space where I'm trying to create so I can affect more people in a positive way. Right. So that's that's one of my biggest things is is that and just consistency of of what I'm trying to accomplish. I mean, it's always, you know, in football, there's there's one recipe for me. It was one recipe like go work hard in the offseason, come out and I, I call it deposit the checks in the offseason, cast the checks during the season. Right. You put the work in in the offseason and then you can go out on the game field and, and cast the checks because you put the work in. If you didn't put the work in can't cash the checks, right? No, no deposits, no cash, right? So um, that's, that's just it, man. And, and I just look at things like I, I told a group of kids the other day, um, I won't be successful until I'm dead, right? That's how I see it because I always feel like there's always something to try to achieve and there's always something that I'm going to cre- keep creating goals and cre- keep creating um, different things to motivate me to do more and be better. Right. And uh, I never see myself as successful until I'm dead, because until I can look back on everything, then then I can be happy with what I've done. I think I had a great start with football, um, but I, I hope that's just the beginning. Right. And if, if the only thing you remember me for is football, then I failed. And that's there's no better way to put that. Yeah. because professional athletes are more than just athletes and yeah. the percentage of time they spend playing in the pros, even if you're a Lou Pisaglia, Paul, Paul McCown play 25 years, 20, 23 years, still a fourth of your life. If you live to 80 years, yeah. still not even half, not even close to half. So it's, there, there's no better way you could have put it. You know, if success is a journey that you, you're only going to know how you maintained it. And if you achieved it, at the end because the journey ain't over till it's over. And that's, that's it. and that's when you, you know, meet, like when, when we, we meet our maker. Right. And so, yeah. um, and so to, to, to wrap up here before we, we, we finish our time, Nick, I want to ask you one, one final question before we finish. And this question is if you could give advice to your younger self based on the things, you know, now through all the years of playing and now through being a father and a family man, what would that advice be to your younger self and why we're still living go harder <laughs> i think that's it like i i'm still here so go harder right i think when we're younger we we don't see we almost feel immortal to a point and but at the same time you go and, and you do things but um, you don't see the long term i remember when i was in class uh in college 
the teacher from Hawaii asked, it was a kinesiology class, asked um, how many people think they'll live to 27 and like only a third of the room raised their hand. And I wasn't one of them, right? Um, and, it's, and it's crazy because you don't see, you don't see life like that. And uh, a lot of people don't. They live more day to day and, and try to enjoy the experiences day to day. But yeah, man, it's like, hey, we're still here. Go harder, man. I'm almost 40. I'll be 40 in two years. And it's like, hey, we made, we, we're here. Like, go hard. Go hard as you can. And, uh, and that's just not, you know, partying and stuff. But that's like in life. Like, let's, let's go do more. And uh, let's utilize the time that we had to affect more people and, and, and do what we need to do. So uh, just that. I would say that, and um, yeah. And it reminds me of, I think it was the shirt that Lamar Jackson wore last year, you know, like no one cares, work harder, like to yeah. really motivate, right? And, uh, and I think that having a positive impact on, on others is such a, such a quintessential part of feeling, being fulfilled and having purpose, and, and that's super important as you get older. And, and, the life uh, of the duck. Yeah. The life of the duck. The ducks look cool, calm, and collective above water. Underneath? They're pedaling like a mother. Yeah, they pedaling <laughs> hard. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's but that's how you have to be. You got to be like a duck. You know what I'm saying? You got to be cool and calm where everybody sees you, but you got to be working hard, hard, hard when they don't. Absolutely. And Nick, with that, we are we have concluded our episode today. So, so thank you so much for being on, Nick. Uh, it was a great pleasure to be able to to have you share your experiences and to talk about the insights that have helped you with aiding success in your career from, from humble beginnings and look forward to the continued successes that you find for yourself and others in the future as you continue on your journey. Yeah. I appreciate it, brother. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you everyone for listening to Nick Lewis, all time leading receiver in receptions in CFL history, two time great, great cup champion. Thank you for huddling up. Here we go. Here we go. Tonight. Easy, easy. And the goal. Kill, Bling, bling. Moves to the right. It goes directly to Clement. Clement reverses it. Nick Foles. It's a touchdown by Nick Foles. Let's go. Let's go. Woo. Everything today. Let's go, B. Jump. Catch him and throw him. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Huddle Up. Make sure to follow on social media at Huddle Up Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Let's make sure to execute this week, and I'll see you next time.